And I'm Steve Vladek. Bobby, it's Wednesday, August 16th. The last couple of days, I, you know, I, I'm 37. You're, you're a couple months older. Um, <laughs> that was very generous of you, my friend. The last couple of days have been some of the more disheartening days of my life that I can remember. Uh, it's, it's definitely been a tough and, and, and ugly week with some really astonishing failures from uh, our president to, to do something that I would have thought was kind of on the short list of things that are super easy to do when you're a president, like denouncing Nazis unequivocally. Yeah, I, I guess he missed that day in, in how to be a leader camp. I don't think he went to that yeah. particular camp. So so we want to we wanna spend a few minutes talking about what happened in Charlottesville and the aftermath, both because we think it's actually a national security issue and there's some national security questions and because it's just inescapable as the the, the topic of the moment. Um, we also want to actually, you know, do some, I don't want to say happier, but but less um, disheartening discussion more, of, of more, recent uh, events. Yeah, and we've got we've got some more conventional national security law topics, but make no mistake, the you know, the, the domestic terrorism on display in Charlottesville, that's a that's in, in the larger atmosphere of violence. Yep. That's that's a national security issue. Oh, there's no question about that. And one that the uh, current holder of the White House seems only interested in exacerbating and not actually trying to remedy or solve or any of this other stuff. Um, but we also probably want to talk about the story that broke about a um, search warrant and a request for IP addresses from the Justice Department to DreamHost, um, actually related to the president, related to a website that was uh, organizing resistance and protest for his inauguration. Good, uh, good Fourth Amendment topic there. And then we've got uh, today's opinion. Breaking news. Breaking news, folks. <laughs> the United States District Court for the District of Columbia has issued an important ruling that went the government's way on in some really important pretrial issues in the prosecution of Abu Qatala, who Abu is Qatala, the the one of the the ringleaders, we think, right, or at least allegedly, of the Benghazi attack that killed Ambassador Stevens. Right, and this go this is a ruling that goes to the uh, practice uh, employed to bring him slowly on a U.S. Navy vessel to the United States with the two stage interrogation. First stage without the involvement, uh, it you know it was, it was probably a uh, uh, high value interrogation group or HIG interrogation or at least a military interrogation without Miranda warnings or anything like that. And then a clean team from the FBI came in. So there were presentment and Miranda issues. The government wins. We're going to talk about just how much did they really win here. Uh, maybe it's not as rosy a picture for the government's uh, preferred interrogation model in these cases as it might seem at first blush. But either way, I think you and I would agree an important precedent for future uh, overseas captures of terrorism suspects and the criminal procedure rules that apply to such cases. Right. Okay. And then we'll get to that. And then? Uh, we wanted to do a little bit briefly on this interesting question that's now arisen in the pre uh, the lawsuit against the president involving his Twitter account. Obviously, that itself is not a national security issue, but there's a larger sort of court. <laughs> Except when he uses it so. to embroil us in potential nuclear wars. But you were saying... Well, listen, it says everything about the last week, right, that the president basically <laughs> threatening nuclear war with North Korea was only the second most preposterously insane thing he did all week. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 2017. Oh, my gosh. All right. But so um, we also want to talk a bit about this question that's now arisen uh, with regard to the federal court's power to actually issue injunctions directly against the president. Our listeners might be surprised to hear that this is actually not 
fully settled that there's some argument that in fact the federal courts might lack that power and so we want to sort of say a bit about that more as a preview of what is probably a coming legal showdown. That's probably right. And who knows what other issues may arise where that's the relevant question in the months ahead. Indeed. Um, We have some listener questions, which we promised on Twitter we would try to respond to. And as always, uh, during the season of Game of Thrones, we will, without giving any spoilers during the legal portion of the show, (laughs) we will at the end turn to our ramblings and what we thought of the most recent episode. And, and, And our speculation about the Westerosi law of primogeniture. Ah, yes. And that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> all right. Um, so, so with that, so, so for Charlottesville, I, there are so many places to start. Why don't we try to start with the law? Good idea. Okay, so the thing that's, if we focus in on the murder, right, there's a lot of uh, speculation and questioning out there. Uh, maybe this is just what you get from reading Twitter too much, but a lot of people saying, why isn't, why isn't terrorism being charged? Right. So, Steve, uh, talk to me about domestic terrorism as a, as a concept that's in the legal system versus domestic terrorism as a concept we use in how we talk about and think about violence and crime. Sure. So the federal law does, in fact, define domestic terrorism. Uh, if, if, you're, if you're checking it at home, it's 18 U.S.C. section 2331, subsection 5. Oh, and can I interject there? Section 2331 itself is just a list of definitions. So this is one of the terms defined in this purely definitional statute. The idea being elsewhere in the federal code, you're going to have reference to this term, and exactly. it, can, it can borrow this definition. So here's the definition. Domestic terrorism means activities that involve acts dangerous to human life that are a violation of the criminal laws of the United States or of any state. Check. Check. Um, that appear to be intended to intimidate or coerce a civilian population to Check. influence the policy of a government by intimidation or coercion, or to affect the conduct of a government by mass destruction, assassination, or kidnapping. I think we agree it's the first one of those. Yeah, probably the second one too, but certainly at least the first of those three sort of motivation tests. Yeah. And occur primarily within the territorial jurisdiction of the United States. Check. Check. So the problem is that that definition, I think you and I agree, is clearly satisfied and, here. And I think Attorney General Sessions said as much on Indeed, the air as well. to his credit. Um, there's no federal crime incorporating that definition. That's right. So this this gets added to, it's it's all in subchapter 113B of Title 18, Title 18 being the main place you find most federal criminal law. Subsection, or subchapter 113B has the heading terrorism, and it's got a, a whole bunch of different things, mostly focused on uh, international terrorism, foreign-related terrorism. Uh, it In the Patriot Act, after after 9-11, there was a provision that added a definition for domestic terrorism. Now, why would you do that if you don't have a standalone domestic terrorism offense? The reason you do it is there are other things that are impacted by this. Uh, first and foremost, investigative authorities. Yep. That It provides a, a textual, or it links up and explains what certain investigative authorities in the Patriot Act that- Were inclu- tied to terrorism. Yes, that included specific reference to domestic terrorism. What does that mean? Well, here's now's where you find out. Uh, secondly, uh, and importantly, there's also an asset forfeiture aspect of this, which yep. I actually think, you know, if you're if your federal prosecutor is listening to this and you're trying to figure out how to go after some of these uh, yahoos, uh, hey, how about some how about some asset forfeiture? The government's awfully aggressive with asset forfeiture in other contexts. Let's see some of it here. So I, I think the other point worth making, and if, if, I hope folks will forgive me for being a con law nerd in the midst of a, such a serious real world conversation. It's also not immediately obvious that everything we might consider to be domestic terrorism actually falls within Congress's enumerated powers 
under Article 1, Section 8, which I think is part of why we see much less skittishness on Congress's part when it comes to defining foreign terrorist offenses. Oh, exactly. Right? Whereas the domestic offenses, it's not that it's Congress or bust, it's that Congress assumes that state law, right, that state criminal codes, which are much more capacious and far-reaching, are the better sort of first line of defense, even for acts that ought to be described as terrorism no, that's under right. whatever man. No, this is, this is a really important point when people sort of say, like, well, what's going on with the federal government not covering this? Federal government doesn't have universal legislative power to make crimes out of whatever it That's feels right. like, notwithstanding some statutes that have been out there over the years that seem to suggest otherwise. Uh, everyone who's listening to this who's had their con law knows you need an Article One, Section 8 hook. You need an enumerated power or, or at least a necessary and proper uh, way to get there. And so when you look through federal criminal law, when you have federal crimes that look like they replicate ordinary, uh, you know, baseline state uh, offenses, almost always there's going to be some international or trans-state element that picks up the interstate commerce hook for it. And so so this is where we get to, I think, the most interesting legal question, um, which is we've discussed before on this podcast the so-called material support offenses, um, 18 U.S.C. 2339A and 2339B. 2339B is about providing material support to foreign terrorist organizations. That's obviously not what we're talking about in this context. But, Bobby, 2339A is about providing material support to terrorists. Well, so it's often described that way. Here, here's how I think of 2339A, and, and you'll forgive me if I kind of get nerded out on this because it's one of the first things I, I wrote about when I became N- an Nerding academic. out on this is so much better than actually confronting the reality of the world we live in well, right true. now. That's true. Let's throw ourselves into our work. Yes. Uh, so 1994, Congress creates 18 U.S. Code 2339A. It's the original material support statute. <laughs> there were, the there, OG. I could talk on and on about exactly what took so long to create this. What did they think they were accomplishing? Suffice to say that... It applies when someone provides material support or resources, including themselves as personnel. I'll never forget that that powerful expander clause. Um, when they do it not to support some group in the nature of an embargo type statute, but rather when they do it knowing and intending that it's to facilitate some particular act on the statute's long list of predicate federal offenses. Now, in this case, does it apply? Well, you have to come through the long list. And, and we just did. Oh, yeah, we did. We just to be safe. We to, just to our listeners, it. we actually did research for this episode. Indeed. We, our instincts were that it's not applicable because almost everything on that list is in some way or fashion an offense in federal law that, you know, you've got stuff about chemical Ex- weapons. You've nuclear got weapons, stuff, genocide. You've got but, all sorts of obvious federal offenses, but you don't. what you don't have is some other hook, like ha- having violated Virginia, uh, you know, murder statutes. Right. Now, the, now there are two the exceptions that could be relevant in other domestic terrorism contexts that don't appear to be relevant here, which is attacks on federal personnel or federal property. So yep. that's why, for example, the Oklahoma City bombing actually falls within the wheelhouse of 2339A, right, because the target was a federal building. Most of the victims were federal officers. That's right. So where, so the way to think about this is where there's a federal jurisdictional hook, if you will, that would explain why Congress would have reached out. And if it's not there, if it's at the, no matter how horrible it is, if it doesn't have the federal jurisdictional hook, then Congress hasn't right. necessarily reached out to grab that. Now, that doesn't mean there's no federal crime to be charged, uh, lots of alternative possibilities. But when you say 
why why didn't they take something off the list in subchapter 113b? Why didn't they charge a terrorism offense? Well, you know, they're call, you can call it terrorism, and there's nothing that stops you from calling that, but there isn't a federal statute that's on point for that. So I agree. I would just say, listen, our, our, our parsing of Title 18 should not dissuade our listeners from the conclusion that it, that, it was in, that it was and will always be a failure of public officials who will only call as te- who only define as terrorism attacks where the perpetrator is a Muslim and the victims are not right. No, That's no just, question, right? sure. Terror- terrorism, terrorism is is the the killing or the harming of individuals to have this kind of political effect right. uh, in violation of the law, and it doesn't matter what your particular twisted ideology might be. And so there's a colloquial failure here, where wholly apart from what federal criminal law says, right, the sort of slowness of the reaction to call what happened on Saturday an act of terrorism. Well, let's be specific about who's, who's being slow. The president's I'm sorry. The president's I, slowness, I, right? I am not trying yeah. to protect the president. No, in no. The, in, in all fairness to the Justice Department, the Attorney yes. General is very clear on this. Right. All sorts of uh, other leaders have been clear on this. And, and let's give another example of uh, coincidentally on Monday, mm-hmm. right? So you have this event that I think in an ordinary year, this would be such big news. Um, but it's got no attention. No, no. So United States versus Darnell is a case that just dropped on Monday. Um, Darnell is a, a guy who uh, thought he was setting off a bomb in front of a federal building in, I kid you not, Oklahoma City. He is a uh, person who is, you, you could describe as sort of an ex- right-wing extremist terrorist, sort of a militia type, uh, very much obviously echoing Tim McVeigh in the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing here. Uh, fortunately, it was all inert. The FBI was in control of the situation. They were, there was a confidential informant working with the person. Uh, I think the DOJ press release said, you know, major domestic terrorism arrest. Uh, the initial charge, there will be more later, I'm sure, but the initial charge was the particular federal statute that talks about using explosives to attack a federal building, I believe, uh, and it has that jurisdictional hook. Yep. Um, our, our law enforcement officials seem clear, as near as I can tell, about calling a spade a spade in this context, Quite. Um, but but the White House is having trouble with it. And, and, and I think it's worth saying, so, so you know, the big points I want to make about the law before we pivot to, to the sort of politics, um, the law is such, I think we agree, at least largely for constitutional reasons, right? And not for a lack of interest on the part of legislators in creating sufficiently serious domestic offenses for acts that we might all agree count as terrorism. That doesn't mean, as we said, that there isn't an array of both state and federal charges to bring the bear in such cases. Just folks should not assume that this is ideological from the perspective of the the gaps in the legal coverage. Exactly. Right. Yeah. The ideology comes in with regard to the way it's described by our civilian leaders, by the president, and by his subordinates. That's a great way to put it. Wow. Yeah, we agree. Holy Toledo. All right, on to the next one. I'm retiring. <laughs> and the podcast is over. Episode 32, Bobby by himself. Um, <laughs> all right, so so – now that we've been on, now that we've been saying nice things, let, let me turn to some not so nice things about the president of the United States. Um, I, I I I come at this I think from a very similar perspective to you, Bobby. Even though, as I've said before on the podcast, there's an element of my Judaism that I think comes out right when I when 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 we're talking about white supremacists and neo-Nazi groups, etc. Very understandable. But but I mean, but my reaction to the president's reaction, right, first on Saturday, and then after his sort of half, forgive me, half-assed attempt to walk Saturday back, his, in my view, just indefensible press conference Mm -hmm. yesterday. Um, 
is not as a Jewish white American, right? It's just as a human. Like, how can you not understand the dog whistle that you are making to white supremacist groups? Well, do you think he doesn't understand? Well, no. And then if you do understand it, then how dare you? Yeah, right. I think, and that's where I think my my sense of it goes. How can you possibly think that this is okay? and, And so, and my reaction is like, you know, I had been willing to accept until Saturday, right, that the president had surrounded himself with people who were racist and white supremacists, right? That, not that, all of them. Not, no, that uh, some. You're talking about Bannon and Miller. Yes, that, that some of the people the president had chosen to surround himself with, right, shared these ideologies of hatred, um, but that maybe the president himself was not as committed to them as he was to how they enabled him to, you know, win elections, et cetera. Um, I can't believe that with a straight face anymore, right? You, you cannot do what the president did Saturday and yesterday and not actually be at least in some way ideologically committed to this enterprise. Well, he certainly, he at a minimum exposed himself to people observing and thinking that that must be the case. And, and it seems inescapable, although although with his peculiar psychology, which is <laughs> well, constantly on mm. display, it's it's really hard to know what conclusions to draw. So I'm not sure that's true, right? I mean, so, so the part of his peculiar psychology I think we saw come shining through was when he did what he was told he had to do, right? right the sort of apologia, the mea culpa. Right. He the, can't help but undermining right. it in the same breath. Once he sees the coverage where like where he's not he's not glorified for doing it, right? Where the coverage isn't like, okay, the president took a little while but he got it right. The coverage instead was, look at this half-assed apology. His reaction is, well fine. Yeah, you know, then I'll tell you what I really think. Okay, they t- made me apologize and now I'm gonna undo it. But this is why I think this actually really is what he thinks, right? Oh yeah, no question look, there's no question that I think he has shown that what he thinks is he has this vision of, of, you know, his effort to try to make it uh, uh, this false moral equivalency, suggesting that, well, there, but there's, you know, there's equal violence or something preposterous like the that. The alt-left started it. Yeah, right, exactly. This this attempt to sort of show, no, it's the other guys. Yeah. I do think that it's his core move. When it, when he feels oh, attacked, totally. he turns it around and says, no, it, it's not me. What you're saying about me is true of you. Well, but also uh, he turns it around and then tries to inform his turnaround with statements that are factually just false, right? So he tried to portray Friday night as this quiet gathering of protesters, right? right to you know peacefully demonstrating around the Robert E. Lee statue in, in Emancipation Park. I mean, we have pictures and video and news reports from every angle that clearly rebut that portrayal of what happened on Friday. So you're, you're reminding me of something I wanted to mention, and this is uh, something that I think is very interesting to think through. There, there's a whole spectrum of activities happening on the part of the, whatever alt-right or whatever you want to call it that was going on there. And there is a spectrum. There, there's a spectrum of people who have nothing to do with the alt-right right, or white supremacy who nonetheless are upset about the statue being turned down. So you've got people who are just protesters or who, who are protesters uh, focused on that issue. You've got a bunch of armed you know, pretend soldiers wearing their, uh, you know, the the camo that they bought and walking around with assault rifles in an open carry situation and and basically functioning as a private military organization. Just imagine if they were Muslim doing this. And and then then you have the particular individual who may be conspiring with others who commits a cold-blooded murder in the most sick fashion. No, I agree. And, and so the interesting question is, so which I, of I think the, there's a layer in between. I think we skipped over the folks who also were responsible for a series of assaults. Right, yeah, and then the people, who, the people who fight who in the context. in between the sort of the armed you know, militia folks and the driver of the car. So this is what I think in some ways it, it's super low-hanging fruit to point out, as we already have, the domestic terrorism incident that was the murder. 
much, and, and I don't think anyone begrudges those who want to actually just peacefully protest the removal of these statutes. Uh, clearly, they have the right to do so. Um, you're not so sure. So they have the right to do so. I mean, I think I think there are ways to impose time, place, and manner restrictions on otherwise constitutionally protected protests to try to at least um, mitigate the circumstances that could no, lead to no violence. No question about that. As our as our friends down the road at Texas A and M are now experiencing indeed, indeed. Uh, as this unfolds. So, so, so oh, no, but let me get of to Of course, this they have a right to protest. I'm just saying that yeah. I don't think that the right to protest is absolute. Okay, so what I'm saying is, it, there's it, the, the legality of what was going on. It's kind of clear at the yep. margins. Yep. I think those those militia members, yep. these these heavily armed people, um, who Governor are, McAuliffe said, right, there was a concern like they outgunned the Charlottesville. Police. Well, here's what's interesting. I think McAuliffe said the a lot of them they think were from out of state right. and Virginia open carry law does not allow people who come from non-open carry states to do that. So first of all, there's an interesting question about whether they had the right to be standing around intimidating the hell and scaring the hell out of people with their weapons. Um, But I think it presents a larger issue that we've got this horrible strain of violence that's trying to sneak its way into our domestic politics. And this this has been going on since the campaign, which was full of dog whistles towards the idea it's kind of okay to have a little bit of violence against those who you're against. This This is a horrible development. And it's most scary, though, when you see it take on that organized combat trained form. And, and so and so this is where I want to be a little less sanguine about Attorney General Sessions than I think you are, right? Which is, yes, yeah, Sessions said all of the right things about the driver of the car, right? But to me, the far scarier thing here is what had happened if we had gotten through the weekend miraculously without the car. Yeah, you just have some, the, you have the scuffles, but not the murder. Right. I suspect the Attorney General wouldn't have said a word. Right. And it seems to me that exactly what you just put your finger on, the sort of the rise of they're not all violent, but the rise of heavily armed protests. Right. Um, Is to me a ticking time bomb for something a hell of a lot worse than one dead counter protester and a series of injuries. Well, it's very scary and I'm a little worried about what it portends. So and also, I mean, I want to say and I think it actually harkens back to the end of Reconstruction. I mean, so so one of the really sort of interesting things that's been going on this week is a lot of folks have been looking back to sort of the Confederate, you know, revival and the monuments and the statues. Um, and this kind of violence, right, was very much what put pressure on moderate Northern Democrats and moderate Republicans at the end of Reconstruction, to end Reconstruction, right? That this is part of why the effort to actually, you know, put things back together in a way that punished the South for slavery and for the Civil War fell apart. Well, I will say this. When we start talking about um, ordinary circumstances where people are showing up, they're not government employees who are nonetheless using weapons yeah. to intimidate and coerce, that sounds like terrorism. Yep. That's the very definition Quite. of it. And, and, and something that I fear is not going to get enough attention, right, in the sort of polarizing headlines coming out of this So weekend. I think here's an interesting thing. It might, insofar as, as we talked about earlier, how, how much of a role state law enforcement yes. has in these places. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if local, th- maybe the DOJ doesn't get interested in some of these heavily armed groups that are showing up to ostensibly protect. But the states will. The states might. And well, I think and that so, could and, be very and interesting. So, you know, obviously it'll depend on which state. Um, so I want to say a bit about the underlying source of this whole controversy, which is the monuments. But before we get there, there's one last thing I think to say about the president finally showing his true colors. Are you surprised that no one has resigned? Because there, there was a story last mm-hmm. night that especially the press conference where things just really totally went off the rails. Well, it did cause some resignations from these advisory councils. Some CEOs were like, yeah. oh, this is, I can't keep doing this. But, I mean, after they got you, pilloried in yeah. the public for you know people. But, but what I'm talking about is, so there's a story about how the press conference took 
most of his senior aides by surprise and horror, right? That they know he feels this way privately, but they were just appalled that he felt this way publicly. Um, I think it's what Michael Cohn had a post this morning with like pictures of him with all of his minority friends, because that's always a good way to go. Um, I guess I am frustrated by the sort of ease with which we're hearing statements of denunciation right and anonymous sources telling reporters oh i'm horrified the president said this and no actual action like is there no one with the courage of their convictions well the question of what action you might want to see is different depending on which institution we're looking yeah. at so for example congress relatively in in a position to do something if you're yes in, it is can we it, underscore that point yes it is yeah, don't right. just write on twitter about how the president's statements are troubling like, you have legislative power, you have oversight power, you have non-confirmation of nominee power. So that raises an interesting question. In the abstract, sure, that's all true. They have those powers. What particular exercises of it would be appropriate here? Like, is there a particular nominee that's currently pending that they should not pass through? Is there a, is there a particular thing that Congress at this moment, other than why doesn't Congress issue a resolution of denunciation or something? They could do that. But, but, but I guess what I'm trying to say is, is I think it's wrong to say what are the manifestations of President Trump's, you know, insanely inappropriate views about white supremacy and, and neo-Nazism in current policy and nominees, there are none, right? But that doesn't mean Congress can't use its tools in other areas to exact, you know, to, to, to pressure the president to behave like a grown-up. I, I, it, it sounds right in the abstract, but I'm having a very hard time imagining what would be the particular appropriate thing that's actually on deck for what them. What if four senators, right, because all it would take is like four Republican senators, right? What if four Republican senators said, dear Mr. President, right, until and unless you do the following five things, apologize for your comments, right, convene this, do that, we will not vote to approve any one of your nominees, I they guess. have the power to yeah. do that. I mean, listen, your, your resistance is their resistance, which is why should I derail an agenda with which I, as a senator, substantively agree? That's yeah, not really what, you know, that's definitely not why I said that well, just okay. now. I mean, it just sounds kind of feckless to me. Yeah, you can say, like, okay, we're, we're going to shut it? we're going to shut down the, the government or shut down legislative process, including appropriations and appointments, many of whom may be really important to get into place for the function of government until you apologize. It seems, it doesn't seem very concrete, and it also seems like something that would never in a million years would Donald Trump then give way, right? You'd, exactly. you'd be precipitating an ugly crisis yes. for what, what particular outcome would you get? Why not something more concrete, like actually waiting for the particular occasion where he's asking Congress to do something concrete? Now, what would that be? Is the interesting question? Is it a nominee who's inappropriate? They've they've approved people so far. I don't know if there's a particular person pending. How about ramping up oversight then? How about you know taking up um, Ben Wittes's FOIA suit right against the Justice Department to figure out why the, it looks like the DOJ was yeah. fudging the statistics about the you know foreign-born criminal offenders? Right, so I agree that oversight is a more plot. That's a more fitting place. Well, but listen, you and I may disagree about which are the right vectors uh, on which to pursue increased leverage. My point is just that to every single member of Congress, and I don't just mean the, the Republicans, right, to the Democrats too, you know, fine, yes, be on Twitter condemning, you know, white supremacy and Nazism and our president, right? Good for you. That is not enough, and that is not the sum total of your authority. 
It's an interesting question. Which lever is I? I don't. I'm not sure. We really disagree. We certainly disagree about the end state. That this yeah. what's going on is not appropriate or tolerable, and people should be speaking out effectively where they can. I'm glad they are at least saying things on Twitter. It's not obvious to me where within the particular things that are on deck for them a stronger, more forceful response is currently appropriate. Short of impeachment proceedings, yeah. which is a whole different topic. Well, they're, cens- they're censure, right? Yeah, I mean, you can. No, that's what I'm saying. You could do a resolution, as I said earlier. You um, could express the joint belief of the body that this is not okay. So really quickly, before we actually you know, turn to actual national security news, um, I just want to say a really quick word about the actual source of this controversy, right? Which is this movement to take down Confederate monuments and Confederate statues in various places in the South, including, I say, the South, and including Maryland, right? We, we heard overnight Baltimore took down four, four statues. Um, I don't want, this is not a national security topic, so I don't want to get into a long, like, you know, what is the appropriate, you know, is if you're going to take down statues of General Lee, what about Chief Justice Taney? If you're going to take down statues of Taney, what about Marshall and Story? Like, that's just, you know, that's, that's coffee table messiness. I don't want to get into it. I do want to say, I actually think the best take on this whole question um, came from what to me at least was a surprising source. It was the mayor of New Orleans, Mitch Landrieu, um, who gave this, I think, really powerful speech in May, got a lot of attention in May. It's it sort of faded a bit from people's consciences since then, um, where he talks about why he, as the mayor of New Orleans, had chosen to take down a series of monuments around New Orleans. Um, I'm just going to read one quick passage from it. He says, after talking about, you know, the richness of New Orleans's history, its culpability for slavery and the slave trade, it immediately begs the questions. Why there are no slave ship monuments, no prominent markers on public land to remember the lynchings or the slave blocks, nothing to remember this long chapter of our lives, the pain, the sacrifice, the shame, all of it happening on the soil of New Orleans. So for those self-appointed defenders of history and the monuments, they are eerily silent on what amounts to this historical malfeasance, a lie by omission. There's a difference between remembrance of history and reverence of it. I actually think that's a really powerful way to think about this. And, you know, reasonable minds could disagree about whether the right answer is to level up. And so keep the General Lee statue, but put a statue right next to it commemorating the slave market, right? Or level down, but level. It is It is a remarkable omission in our um sort of statuary around the country, you see very little that references back the places and the physical locations and the practices of slavery that went on in these places. And it does seem to me that one very appealing way to try to find some middle ground in this is is to make sure, if nothing else, to put a lot of muscle behind trying to increase that visibility. And if you're not going to do that, right, then recognize that it's inappropriate to tell a one-sided story about history. Right. Well, and this connects up with the observation that a lot of these statues, there's a, there's a substantial difference between a, a town that's commemorating the war dead from its town and a town that 100 years later in the midst of the thick of, of battles over race and the law. Right. And desegregation. Right. Throwing up a, a, a statue of a, of a general who you're basically taking their memory in order to try to use tap into this sort of mythos as a way to express in a not-so-subtle way your views about current racial issues. Right. I mean, listen, I mean, I am an amateur military historian at best, but for all the statues of General Lee, right, and of Beauregard and of Stonewall Jackson, where are all the statues of General Longstreet? I mean, there's a reason why there are not that many statues of General Longstreet, and it's not because he wasn't it, as effective a commander. It, 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 it's not just a, a continued sniping about his role at Gettysburg? <sighs> All right. Anyway, um, I, I think we beat this into the ground a yeah, little bit. Have. Hopefully, we're hopefully 
this is a one-off incident. We don't see more of these. Well, we'll see. Fingers crossed. Okay, so turning to some Please. more traditional national security legal Where I issues. feel less awkward talking about this on the air. No, okay, let's talk about this amazing uh, warrant. Let's be clear about the warrant to Dreamhouse. This is a search warrant granted by a judge. Now, right. now a judge, a, a judge on the D.C. Superior Court, right? So, so this is actually a local criminal local, prosecution. Yeah. It just so happens that D.C. is the one, one of the few places in the country where both the local and federal criminal prosecutions are run by the U.S. Attorney's Office and therefore the Justice Department. Right, exactly. So that's an important nuance. But the key thing is there was a, you know, ostensibly a probable cause showing the justified judicially approved issuance of the warrant. The reason this is controversial is the scope of the warrant. It's a warrant for production of information. Well, and, and, and the optics. The optics are part of why it's. Oh yeah, yeah, you're, yeah, completely right. Let me let me describe Sorry, the warrant first. itself, and then we can add in the context. That yeah. I this this should be controversial, even if it had nothing to do with Donald Trump or the I federal agree. government. But I think I think it just you know especially this week I think that added to the sure no question you're right it's it's twice determined these are both sufficient conditions to be controversial. It the request had to do with a website that was hosted through uh, DreamHost. And the website was a site that was involved in organizing a particular uh, protest movement involving, was it the inauguration? It was the inauguration. Trump's inauguration. And, and, I, and as I understand it, the allegation is there was a planned uh, riot, there was planned illegality as this particular protest movement's well, way there of were, expressing right. I mean, their there views. were, in fact, a series of, you know, destruction of property, right, violence, rioting, charges. No, that's right. And, these, and you know, you can talk about about the first memo you want, that's not lawful to no, do that. Course, and it's entirely appropriate for the prosecutors to be investigating those crimes. What's interesting here is in order to gather more information, presumably about who was involved in organizing this, they asked the, uh, the hosting service to provide all kinds of information about everybody who's visited the site. Including IP addresses, and, right? And, and right. So you can track back who all's visited. And this gets at this question of, you know, uh, particularity and warrants. It, it'd be one thing if they, were, if they had a, a few particular IP addresses they were maybe interested in. This is the reverse. They don't know who they're interested in entirely. Right. They're trying to find out who's been there so they can then look to see or, what right. else they or find they out. Or if they went to the court and said, listen, we, we, we have 25 user accounts. Right, that we think we're directly responsible for what happened, we'd like to backtrack the user information on these 25 accounts. It's 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 sort of analogous to go to a pre-internet type of analogy. If if somebody in the town had uh, set off a bomb and they think, oh, it's the anarchist cookbook and that's available at the public library, all right, we'd like the library record of everyone who's checked this book out over the past two years so you can come through there and have a list of suspects or something like that. Anyways, it's a scope issue because they're providing information or they've been asked to provide information about everybody who visited the site. And obviously not everyone involved there. So, uh, would be somewhat of interest. So, so the 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 host, right, Dream Host, objected, right, and so there's now litigation before a different judge in the D.C. Superior Court about whether the original warrant request should be honored. I, I think you and I have roughly the same reaction that there is a specificity problem here. Yeah, it just and, and I'm open to I'm open to being persuaded by additional facts that maybe there's a reason it's framed as broadly as well, it is. But there's but, a, but there's a question, right, which yeah. is which is is it really not possible for DOJ to frame its request? with more specificity. Um, our, our mutual friend Oren Kerr has a bit of a different take, right? Can you say a bit about the, the sort of the two-step? Well, I don't, so I think he's, at least as far as I've seen, I don't think he's expressed an opinion on this, but no. he's contextualized it by pointing out that uh, when it comes to computer searches, there is a two-step process in many instances that's approved by the judge. Step one is we're going to Steve Vladek's office. We, uh -oh. we have a warrant to get his computer because of all the, you know, whatever that's on the there. The next picture is on there. Yeah, exactly. That is a crime. Yeah, <laughs> 
And, uh, and we're not going to sit there, let's assume for the sake of argument, it will take our forensics team X number of hours to actually come through his files and figure out where he's hidden stuff and you know dealing with all the problems you might have of that kind. We're not going to sit there in his office to do it. We're going to come get the computer. Now, we don't actually have a right to get and access everything on his computer. We're going to get it, and then we'll do the search in more or less leisure and then get the computer back to him once we've done our search at the second stage. And Orm points out that there's some reason to believe that in the application, the government kind of framed it and perhaps persuaded the judge that this will be a similar sort of two-step process. We're going to dump all this information, and then we're going to, then we're going to parse it, and then we'll keep on what we need to. Um, I think he says, and I think this is right, that it's it, I, I at least haven't seen a similar case doing that, not in the context of grabbing an actual you know hard drive out of your location pursuant to a warrant, but rather going to a third-party provider and saying, just give us everything, and we'll, we'll thumb through and see what's most relevant. Yeah, and I think the question is whether like that proves too much in this context, right? And whether right. And, and and that's what must be seen. So um, this got big headlines because it was framed, I think, by the Hill reported it first. Yeah, oh, they, you know, the headline writers couldn't resist and said the Trump DOJ goes after all one point their- three million IP addresses, right. right, of folks who visited an anti-Trump website. I think they're, you know, some of the headlines, you know, say, say things like uh, it's the politicized DOJ, like like Jeff Sessions sat around saying, hey, right. let's let's squelch those protesters. I mean, I'll, I'll maybe, but no, I, no, if there's no evidence of this. So let me just say, if it was Jeff Sessions, right, they wouldn't be doing this through a line AUSA in the That's D.C. Right. Superior Court. No, and so I think you and I both agree this this does have all the hallmarks of a potentially overbroad, yeah, sure. certainly at least politically unsavvy uh, effort by by a line AUSA. Um, that said, a judge approved it, so there's there's some uh, yeah. there's some interesting <laughs> angle to it there for what that's worth. Um, uh, All right, uh, you know we'll, we'll see what happens. Let me say, I would not be surprised if what ends up happening here is a modification to the warrant to, to narrow its term. Absolutely. And, I, all, and, and this goes away as a as sort of a, a subject of, of public interest. Exactly. I think that's right. Um, all right. So now we've got this D.C. Uh, district yeah, court so, opinion. So, so just in case, I mean, the funny thing is, right, if nothing else had happened in the last two weeks, this one decision would have made, I think, a whole podcast worth of interesting discussion. Because it's got the big word B, Benghazi. It's a Benghazi decision. Okay, that so that alone not, is going to grab That is not headlines. why I was going there. Um, <laughs> I was going there because, you know, we've talked briefly on the podcast and, and a heck of a lot more in our actual class um, about the rise of what you might call national security criminal procedure, about the sort of yeah. the unique questions that arise on the front end of what's going to become a federal criminal terrorism prosecution when you have especially suspects who are arrested, captured, otherwise picked up outside the U.S. have to be brought back here and are perhaps interrogated between Thither and hither. Right. And it's not that particular phenomenon is not new. It's not a post 9 11 nope. development, but it takes on special resonance from 2007 ish onwards as we've gotten more and more skittish, indeed, uh, you know, seemingly entirely allergic to actually doing long term military detention of persons captured overseas in relation to terrorism. When we want to keep them in our custody, what happens instead? And there's, there's a handful of these cases. They are, for some brief period of time, in uh, military custody, usually on a U.S. Navy vessel. They are subjected to interrogation. And we're not talking about enhanced interrogation techniques. One of the, one of the notable features of today's opinion is its reference to the humane and, and generally speaking, non-problematic nature of whatever interrogation did take place. Or at least the conditions weren't problematic. Right, yes. And, uh, but it is a non-Mirandized. It's not a law enforcement interrogation. That comes at step two when an FBI clean team parachutes in. They come in. It's different investigators. They give Miranda warnings. They ask for a waiver. In this case, they got it repeatedly. 
But then when the person is brought into court, uh, inevitably, of course, they say, like, look, this is all uh, – it was not voluntary. The waivers weren't voluntary. Uh in this case, the government is prosecuting a person for alleged involvement in the Benghazi attack that killed the ambassador. Um, the government wants to use the statements that uh, Abu Qatala made to the clean team. This isn't an attempt right, the to use. Yeah, it's not a Quarles public safety case trying to get in the pre-Miranda. Which statements. is interesting. I mean, I want to I want to yeah. get to that. Well, but. it's. I think that the the explanation must be that they he pretty much said whatever inculpatory things he said. Were in the pre-Miranda phase, probably were said again during the post-Miranda phase. Right, but 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 I mean, we'll talk about Missouri versus Siebert, right? Because I actually think it's it's not. It's, it, I don't know why the government didn't try both arguments, right? As like like why yeah, as a fallback, like it doesn't matter anyways. Right, but all right, so so I mean, listen, it's it's. I actually think the the presentment discussion is more important than the Miranda discussion. Right. So lay out first for our listeners what the the handful of key issues were that were resolved. Right. So so Abu Qatala moved to suppress the statements he made to the FBI clean team, right? Which which Bobby just described um, on the ground that they were um, unlawfully introduced in violation of two different things. First, the so-called McNabb Mallory rule, which is a presentment doctrine, which has to do with um, I mean I. Tell me if I get this right. I've always understood McNabb-Mallory is basically saying it is a violation of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure, Rule 5, I think, Rule specifically, five. Um, to delay the presentment of a suspect for the purpose of having additional time to interrogate him, right? And so whatever to, other— un To unreasonably delay it. Right, yeah. right. So whatever other sort of rules govern how long you have to present a suspect before a neutral magistrate— you can't unreasonably delay presentment solely for the purpose of interrogating the suspect. Right. It, it, it's certain common sense level, it boils down to this. You can't say, well, let's just not have an arraignment for a couple of months. Let's just interrogate for a while. You can't do that. And, and McNabb-Mallory kind of reflects that sort of common sense proposition. Okay. Now, but it leaves the question open, okay, but how long? Well, right. So in the domestic context, right, so there's this 1991, I think, Supreme Court case, County of Riverside versus McLaughlin, that says that the default rule not under the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure, but under right. the Fourth Amendment, is presentment before a neutral, neutral magistrate within 48 hours, right? That's a, the default. That's the yeah. default rule. Um, you know, whether that should bend one way or the other, 48 hours is a lot less time than Abu Qatala was in U.S. custody no, before no, he was presented. Sure, and, and this is obviously not a domestic case and not the ordinary case. Right. These, are, these are all rules constructed for ordinary law enforcement. Right. So, um, so, so I thought the big question here was how do we map, right, ordinary presentment doctrine onto an overseas capture, right, which really is not the subject of a lot of judicial exposition, even though we've had, as you say, yeah. a number of these cases. Well, in the key case here, the one I immediately think of is old Operation Goldenrod yeah. and uh, Fawaz Yunus, who in the 1980s, uh, he was involved in a, in a, a terrible uh, ter act of terrorism involving a hijacking, was, was in Lebanon, and uh, we were able to lure him out to international waters. And, and I love this feature of the story. As I understand it, the lure was he thought that he was going out to party yep. out on this boat with, yep. with – uh, there were, there were going to be drugs and, or whatever. It was going to be a big party. And I just love to imagine what the look his face must have been when the agent said – once they were out there, said, uh, you know, you're under arrest <laughs> and, and, and took him into custody. No more this, party. This is not a, this is not a party you're going to enjoy. Right. And they put him on a U.S. Navy vessel and made the ride back across the Atlantic. And then eventually the guy was prosecuted. Executed, he moved to suppress his statements too, and uh, the district judge. I know it was, it was a presentment issue there as well, and the district court actually bought into it, and the and the court of appeals reversed. Yep. Uh, 
we're not going to have the reversal here, I think, because the district court in this case decided this was all within the realm of reason for a host of, and this is where it gets interesting, Yes, a host of very specific and really detailed reasons about why exactly it took so long and, and critically why the government had to go ahead and do it by boat rather than flying him back, which would have obviously been much quicker. The court put a ton of weight on the detailed descriptions of the efforts the government did make to try to arrange a, a foreign transfer uh, and, and how there were many reasons why you, you couldn't do it with this country, you couldn't do it with that country. At a certain point, you really just had no choice but to take the boat back. Um, now, so, that's not always going to be the right. case. I mean, so, so this is what struck me as, I think, the most interesting part of this 59-page decision, right, which is the slow ship, right? Abu Qatal, I think, best argument was that, come on, they did not need to put him on a naval vessel and literally sail him halfway around the world to get him from where he was arrested to federal court in New York, right? There were any number of times and moments and opportunities where they could have expedited the process and that that was the source of the unreasonable delay for McNabb-Mallory purposes. And the court didn't say, no, they can do what they want. The court said, no, 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 they tried. They actually, they really were forced into this. Now, the implication is in a future case where you didn't have these same facts and where there's really no reason why you couldn't have put this person on it in it, gone to a nearby airport and, and flown them back. Yeah. Or, or there's an aircraft carrier right there that's got some availability to, to get you a plane and do it through the military uh, air system. Uh, the implication is you might have gotten a different answer. And I think that's where the government has a lot to fear from this decision. It, the court didn't say this would not have been okay, but for these uh, excusing facts. But it sure, well, it sure implied re it. It reads like it. It does read I like mean, that. I mean, Judge Cooper, this is Casey Cooper. I mean, Judge Cooper spends a long time, right, um, walking through all of the government's explanations for the logistical complexities that made it not impossible, but difficult and risky. Here's a strategy question for you, or really almost a sort of a what's in the realm of the possible. If you're a DOJ yeah. and you're concerned with litigating future cases and just we'll stipulate you want to have the broader rule, yeah. uh, is there any way, given that you know this is going to be thrown back in your face, but it was a ruling in your favor, is there any way in which you get uh, the Court of Appeals eventually to weigh in on this to maybe take a broader, more flexible approach? I, I can't possibly imagine how you would get mandamus, right, which in pre-trial yeah. criminal context. So, so nothing nothing along the way. What about afterwards? Like they'll, as a cross-appeal after conviction. Yes. Um, maybe. I mean, it is the I mean, It's circuit. weird, right? Like, what relief are yeah. you asking for? You're just yeah. asking for a different holding. I mean, listen, if uh, you could hope, right, that Abu Qatala, if he's convicted, raises this on appeal. Because, right, once the defendant That's true, actually. Appeal, That's a good point. Qatala's going to do the work for them because he's bound to raise the suppression issue right. again. And then and then the government can say, you know, the district court got it right, but we actually— For the wrong reason. For the wrong reason. Yeah, so, they never should have gone into that. But That's listen, interesting. But, but all I want to say, I, just, I, want, I think the McNabb-Mallory issue, you know, Judge Cooper, I think, is on the money that there's a way to actually apply McNabb-Mallory even for overseas captures. And that the right question is, you know, what exactly were the difficulties the government faced in trying to bring the person back more quickly? So here's something that interests me, and it frustrates me that there's not a discussion of it. So I would imagine the argument that the government might most like, or at least some of the government might most like, is, yeah. look, when it's a person who's both chargeable as a criminal defendant, and indeed we have an indictment on them, 
But it's also someone we are asserting is involved in an armed conflict, and yeah. it's under color of the law of armed conflict. Note from the fact pattern, the first thing that happened on the ship, they read and had translated to him common Article 3 of the Geneva Conventions. So, so, so this is why you, – so you said a few minutes ago that, right, this is since 2007. I want to rewind – I think this is since, you know, 2002, right, John Walker Lind. I mean, I wrote a whole article on um, what I called constitutional cross-roughing. Right, I borrowed this bridge term, where the whole idea was that in cases where the government has a plausible ability to argue that someone captured overseas could be placed in either the military detention or military commission or civilian criminal prosecution paradigm, that the various legal doctrines actually give the government flexibility yep. to take advantage of both paradigms and actually avoid, for the most part, meaningful judicial review of either at least ab initio, at least at the front end. Well, I certainly agree, and, and the point I'm trying to make is they may have, and I think it's an interesting question, is this guy actually within the scope of the armed yeah. conflict? But assuming that he is, and there's definitely some arguments that he was, um, why isn't that the answer to this? That for a period of time, a very brief period of time, they were holding him under color of the law of armed conflict as they had a right to do. And so McNamara doesn't apply. Right. So, that was, so That's, that, that's right. how it looks to me. I mean, so that's, you know, the government has argued, at least in other contexts, I haven't read the briefs quite as closely in this case, that all of the relevant clocks, right, in the criminal prosecution yeah. context don't start at the moment of capture. Right. They start at the moment that the government commits to, commits to civilian prosecution. criminal prosecution. Maybe that's the answer here is that, look, you know, they really weren't committed to using the military detention yeah. model. And yet they started with that model, clearly. Well, and so so that's why I think, you know, you say this is sort of a, a you didn't use this word, but an equivocal prece precedent for the government, yeah, right? Yeah, no, I think it's right. That's exactly what I meant. And, and I guess I would just say, yes, but, you know, I, I think... Nothing in today's ruling gives me that much more comfort about the cross-roughing problem in a case in which the government tried to exploit it. You described it as a problem. I just I think it's a, it's a description. It's also just so, when so, you have someone who's subject right. to multiple systems, you don't lose the ability to use one of them because the other one's stricter. Okay, so 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 let me posit the following hypothetical, right? So oh man, I'm in trouble now. So Abu Qatala is picked up, right? He's held in military detention. Whether let's assume yeah. that the government's not sure that he actually can be held under the AUMF, but they do it anyway. Okay, they take him to Gitmo. Take him to Gitmo. He files a habeas petition. Okay. Right? Um, litigation over the habeas petition is ongoing, ongoing, ongoing. Let's say he wins his habeas petition, right? Okay. Government appeals. All right? He's still at Gitmo, goes to the D.C. Circuit. D.C. Circuit being the D.C. Circuit um, reverses. Okay. Right? And says, no, 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 there's enough here. All right? Now there's a cert petition. All right? Um, on the day before their opsert is due... The government decides to not risk it and transfers Abu Qatala to civilian criminal prosecution. So it's like Padilla, sort of. Well, wait, it's getting better, okay. right? So they move him into the U.S., right? They try him before a court, but unlike Padilla, he's acquitted. Right, and then they send him back. Well, okay, you're, you're now describing what nearly happened in Galani. Exactly. And indeed, in, in one of his opinions in that case, Judge Kaplan, for whom I clerked, <laughs> uh, the wonderful Judge Kaplan, uh, observed that it, his understanding was that, you know, the government had not in any way, by moving Galani out of military detention, right. forsworn the ability. they hadn't forsworn the ability to put him back there. And, and, that, and, that and what I'm saying is, and Bobby, what I'm saying is, it has to be the case that at some point along that chain, the government can't just keep bouncing someone back and forth from one to the other 
where at the last minute before the courts are in a position to rule on the legality of either regime, the government is taking that power away from them. I'm not sure that's legally correct, what you, what you say. That. that may be undesirable as a policy matter, but let's take a different example where it's an ordinary armed conflict, World War II type of thing, and you have a person who's clearly, you know, he's, he's in the German army, you've captured him, he's a POW, and after, then, but you find out he's involved in war crimes, he's SS or something, he's done these things, so but the evidence yeah. is thin, you, you just hold him for years as a POW, but then at a certain point, whether the war is over. Let's assume the war is not over. It's, yeah. it's kind of counterfactual. It's going on and on. Yeah, yeah. They decide, let's let's take the shot. It'd be great to prosecute this guy for his war crime or for whatever offenses for which he yeah. doesn't have combatant immunity. You go to trial. Uh, it goes and goes and goes. It goes on for years. At the end, it actually looks like you're going to lose on this. You say, oh, forget it. We're just going to get bad pressing out of this. Send it back to the POW camp because the war is still going. That strikes me as, you know, totally fine. So I guess my only point is what what I think makes that hypothetical sound so much better to you and I suspect our listeners is that it's probably the case that no one is seriously doubting in that context that the individual in question was properly subject to military detention. Right. And my nightmare scenario is the government's ability to avoid a definitive ruling in a marginal case on military detention authority by its ability to cross rough. So but ultimately they don't like avoid Padilla. it cuz sooner or later Sooner or later, you don't avoid it in the end. They have, I mean, you, they, they have, they've, they've been able to avoid it thus far. No, you, you can't. There's no scenario in which if you're subject to habeas review, you can ultimately avoid that simply by every now and then kicking the guy out to the criminal justice system and then bringing it back. Sooner or later, these processes have to culminate. Either the person's convicted or they're staying. I mean, you don't get to go back and try them again and again. On different charges? On different indictments? Well, okay, so you charge them for the crimes you've got, but there's no example of the government sort of no. sending someone into the system, bringing it back. Send him back and dodging the ball. And well, I have well, there's one, Almari. Al so Almari went from civilian to military to civilian. Uh, yeah, right? I, mean, I think that's a straight. I think he's like Padilla. He was held as a material witness, but then very quickly put into military detention. And then, is, like Padilla, he was prosecuted and, and, and convicted. Yeah, so, I, I just, I, listen, you're right. There are no examples of my nightmare scenario, but there's also no doctrine, I think, at the moment that would prevent the nightmare so scenario. I just, I just don't think it can get to that. I think that it's it's quite clear okay. that if that were to arise, if someone were to try it, some it would, judge would stand up. Absolutely. All right. Well, yeah. I hope you're right. Hopefully, um, we never find out. All right. So, really quickly on the Miranda point, right? I mean, that's that we, we beat. Oh, yeah. There was, there, there was also the Miranda, Miranda issue. So, and so, voluntariness in general. So, I actually, when I was clerking on the Ninth Circuit, you know, let, let me also name drop my clerkship. There you go. Good job. Um, we had a case about. About Missouri versus Siebert, right? Um, which is about so-called midstream Miranda warnings. And in the non-awkward terrorism overseas capture context, the concern about a midstream Miranda warning is that it's a sort of way to trick um, an unsophisticated suspect. Right. right? You're like, yeah, oh, you've been talking. Oh, by the way, can you you need to sign this thing here where, just to clarify? Where the government should not be able to take advantage of post-warning statements, right? In a context in which the suspect might not have appreciated. Right, that um, the pre-warning statements were actually protected and inadmissible. So this suggests this this highlights it's obviously a real danger, and so we ought to have a system where someone like say a judge can look at all the evidence yep. of how the and that's what happened here. Yeah, and and I think that this judge there's a ton of detail in this record. It yeah. seems like a pretty straightforward, clean team. No, 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 scenario. No, listen, listen. I actually think this is the best example I've ever seen of an appropriate context for a midstream Miranda warning because of the different foci. Right of yep. the pre-warning interrogation versus the post-warning interrogation, it's a much bigger problem in a local law enforcement context, right? Where all they're doing, yeah, it's all the exact same it's thing. It's the same guy, same that's people. The same question. Yeah, it's not a clean team deal. Right. Yeah. So, so the general model 
gets a real big boost here. The yep. general interrogation exactly. model of let's have a window for short-term high exigency, non-Miranda, uh, you know, military-administered probably interrogation, but, but not, and then but, right. and then try to get what you need if if you need anything for trial with the clean team process. And and, and they get away with it here. Uh, I do wonder why the government wasn't even interested in offering the argument that the pre-Miranda statements were admissible in any event yeah. under the quarrel special needs. I'm really surprised that wasn't pushed. Uh, it must be that they've got everything they could possibly need to use against and so the guy right, post. And so, uh, well, and that, right, and that they felt more confident. So Missouri versus Siebert, right, the length of the interrogation is only one of many factors, right? Whereas public safety, length is a big deal. It's a big deal, yeah. And, so and, maybe, and the content of what you're asking about. And so maybe in this context, they weren't as comfortable as, for example, in the underwear bomber case, Abdul Muttalib, right, where they actually got a very good district court ruling on the use of the public safety exception in terrorism cases. And ironically, a case where the need for uh, using in court the statements is, you know, right. nothing right. compared right. to here. Well, which is why I think they were pushing for a good precedent yeah. on good facts. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Okay, um, so what have we got next in our right, dwindling so, time? Let's pick up the pace. Well, so what I was going to say was, why don't we hold off for the moment on our discussion of the power of the federal courts to Good idea. Let's save that, the for, president. Save that um, for next week. Mississippi versus Johnson is not going, it's a 150-year-old decision. It's not going it's, away. It's not going anywhere. Um, so why don't we sort of pivot quickly to listener questions and then to our, our Game of Thrones. Let's do it. I'm fired up and newly energized. All right. So we got four listener questions. The first is, when does the pardon power end? Um, not, I don't fully understand what the question was asking, but I think the, the president has the pardon power every second that he's president. Um, and he can use it at least, I think everyone agrees, he can at least use it for all criminal offenses that have been committed prior to his use of the pardon power, whether they've been charged or, or not. And, right? and, and indeed, so and, if you look at, at the least end, commit, At least committed by other people. If you look at the question of end from the right. perspective of the, the criminal defendant or the person who's been convicted right. or, or charged uh, at any time, including post-service of a sentence, right. you, can, you can be exonerated. Right. Not someone exonerated, but you, you know, can be pardoned. You can be, like, someone could have been free for 20 years, yeah. and a pardon still wipes out the effect so of the So the more conviction. interesting question is, right, when, does, when does it begin? Can you pre-pardon someone and, notionally? So, right. and, and, one of the, and so, right, one of the arguments is that you actually can't, right, because a pardon is meant to excuse prior bad acts, not future ones. Otherwise, it would be like an immunity. Right. What if, okay, so... So assume the act has occurred, but there's been no action by the government so to that's, charge. So that's clearly covered, right? A pardon can, so as long as the pardoned conduct predates the pardon, right? And yep. as long as the pardonee is someone who's allowed to receive the pardon, I think there's widespread agreement that's fine. Yep, okay. Um, hence, and, like Ford's pardon of Nixon. Right, and so you get to you get to wipe the slate clean, and and that's why the pardon power is indeed, and certainly at the founding was widely understood to be an immensely important power. Uh, cool, all right. Um, the second question was uh, a reader asking us for an update on Gill versus Whitford. Um, so this is not exactly a national security case. Uh, Gill versus Whitford is the major Wisconsin partisan gerrymandering case that the Supreme Court's going to be hearing in October. Um, let me take off my national security hat for a second and put on my Supreme Court watcher hat. I will take notes. This um, is all no, no, just say, to me. So, so Gill is by far the most important partisan gerrymandering case the court has had since 2006. When it had a case out of Texas, right? Lulac yep, versus Perry. Yep. Um, I think the the question in Gill will not surprise our listeners, right? It's is Justice Kennedy ready yeah. to take a step that he was not ready to take? Oh, this is is in this the one about whether there's a way, whether there's a formula or an administrable test that can be used? That's to, the underlying question, it. right? Like, so so here's the thing, right? There's widespread agreement among the justices that excessive partisan gerrymandering is unconstitutional. 
there is widespread disagreement about whether the courts are in a position to do anything about it because it's hard to tell the difference between an unconstitutionally partisan gerrymandered district and a constitutionally partisan gerrymandered district. So that's what the court held in LULAC back in 2006. Right. Um, Justice Kennedy wrote this opinion concurring in the judgment where he says, I agree that there are no standards today, but I'm not willing to say that this is like in perpetuity. Come back to me, litigants, when you find a way to do this. Well, in Gill versus Whitford, um, the plaintiffs got the lower court to strike down Wisconsin's gerrymandering on the ground that it was, you know, that they could prove that they had a, a, a manageable legal standard for showing that it was an unconstitutional partisan gerrymander. That's the case where the Supreme Court has decided to, you know, hear what is technically an appeal because it's coming from a three-judge district court. You know, I, I don't know how to read this, Bobby, largely because I just don't know how to read Justice Kennedy. Because I think you do. If no, you, right. If you I, did, you could go to Vegas with that. Oh my gosh. Um, so you know, I think it's just it's going to be a it's going to be a really interesting oral argument and and an important case to watch. So all right, stay tuned. And then uh, we what were asked. What podcast do we listen to? So I, I do obviously. I, I listen to the National Security Law podcast. I heard NSL podcast is really good, <laughs> although the jokes are awful. And the production values. Eh. I will I will rattle off the list of of ones that are currently in in my uh, podcast feed. Um, Lawfare podcast, not surprisingly, uh, for those who don't listen to I mean, I assume anyone who listens to the show knows what Lawfare is, knows what Just Security are. Um, the Lawfare podcast, you know, has all sorts of different coverage and different participants. Sometimes it's interviews. Uh, we've actually got one coming up we we're going to record later that's going to be about the NSA CyberCom split issue that involves me, and, and it's going to be good, I think. You've written one or 40 things about Indeed, that. Indeed. It seems like 40 when you read the one. <laughs> uh, Rational Security, which, of course, has uh, Ben Wittes, uh, Shane Harris, Tamara Wittes, Susan Hennessy. Uh, that's a really great all-around sort of kind of politics and, and national affairs on the security and foreign affairs side. Uh, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History is a must-listen. That I, I drop everything when he occasionally uh, produces. These are, these are long-form basically like radio documentaries, and they're incredible and so interesting. Uh, and ditto for Mike Duncan. Anything Mike Duncan does, he's the guy who did the, the famous History of Rome podcast and then has followed it with this incredibly ambitious and fascinating Revolutions podcast. It's, it's history in, in sort of 20-minute chunks across amazing topics and extremely well done. Um, and by his book, the Storm Before the Storm, which talks about the uh, crisis in the late Roman Republic right before you get to Caesar and emphasizing the decline of traditional norms that weren't laws but were norms. And when those came under pressure and political violence entered domestic politics, what it did to Rome, rather interesting. Uh, Steptoe's Cyber Law Podcast and also Risky Business by Pat Gray for cybersecurity stuff. Uh, How do you listen to all of these? I drive, you know, to and from work listening to this stuff. You have like, a, you have like an 11-minute commute. I listen to them on 1.5 speed, and uh, which is harder. You still for have an 11-minute commute. And also uh, when I'm on the elliptical. This is what I listen all to right. in exercise. All right. All right. Uh, Citadel Dropouts with uh, Spencer Ackerman and Laura Hudson talking about uh, Game of Thrones. Ah, And I'll stop there. There were a few others. But well, I think and we have a new Citadel Dropout. Yeah, we do. Um, <laughs> That's good. So, thank did, you. Wait, did they know? They must have seen it coming. Apparently, by the so apparently by the way, I'm. I'm oh, wait, I, we have a, wait. Oh, we should say spoilers. We got to. Okay, gotta all right, all right, all right. right. I will hold off on my Citadel dropout joke. Although, um, a non-spoiler spoiler alert. Apparently, episode seven, six, whatever next week's episode is, HBO accidentally released it 
on HBO España and one other like, <laughs> European H. So like there are now spoilers all over the internet for oh, what's wait, happening that, next Maybe there's a way to get back at the hackers who uh, stole that. Okay, but what about your podcast? What about you? Um, so I, I listen to far fewer podcasts. Um, so I listen – the, the podcast I listen to most religiously is actually not a podcast. It's just part of the interruption. Um, oh, okay, yeah. Which I just never have the ability to actually watch, and right. so I listen to it. Um, I, I have been a PTI fan from the beginning, and even before that, I was a high school sports fan in Washington, D.C., where the only redeeming feature of the Washington Post was Michael Wilbon and Tony Kornheiser. <laughs> um, one of the only redeeming features. All right. Um, our mutual friends, uh, Christian Turner and Joe Miller at the University of Georgia, have a fantastic podcast called Oral Argument, which I love to listen to. Um, it's, I wish I could sort of concisely describe what they cover. It is, it is a just wonderful tour of interesting topics in contemporary law and thought and public policy. Huh, I'll give with, that a shot. With rotating guests, um, including... They invite me on sometimes. That explains it. Well, (laughs) don't listen to those. Skip those episodes. Um, The Supreme Court nerd in me loves First Mondays. Uh, Ian Samuel and Dan Epps' new-ish podcast about the Supreme Court and all of its uh, nerddom and minutia. Um, My one sort of crappy, liberal, like, you know, I don't know what a uh, 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 jingoistic podcast is, Pod Save America. (laughs) What's it Um, called? Pod Save America. Oh, yeah, sure. That's a very popular one. Yeah, it's a little broy. It's it's a lot broy. Um, you you're, know. you're such a bro, Steve. I, I really am a bro. Um, and then last but not least, um, so my my brother-in-law and sister-in-law Matt and Dory have a podcast called Matt and Dory's Excellent Adventure, which is about their adventures dealing with IVF. That's very cool. Um, I actually think it's really, really, uh, really, really awesome. Both because they're both hilarious, funny, smart people, and so just their their repartee and banter is brilliant. But also, it's 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 a subject that you know I'm I'm sure whether you know it or not, you have friends and family members who have dealt exactly. with fertility Gives issues, you some insights. and it's just it's such a powerful discussion of what is really, for reasons that I think make sense but are unfortunate, a, a topic that's still mostly taboo. Yeah, right. In, that should be talked about more. Culture. And this sounds like a real good contribution. So so those are those are my, my big my big five after of course the National Security Law Podcast. Indeed. All um, right. Uh, now how are we doing on time? How far have we gone here? Uh, one hour and five minutes. So we're going to do a super. There's a. We'll say for next week our summer national security reading list, and we yep. will pivot to Game East of Thrones. Watch. Okay, turn off if you don't want the spoilers. And okay, we're clear. So um, I have a lot of complaints. I'm I'm so you not... complaints. Yes, oh, I, thought, I thought this week was fantastic. Oh no, I just feel like you know my running complaint this yes. season is it feels so it feels so much more forced than well, yes. it used to, and it, and it creates this fear in me that what's happened is without the discipline of the books. The writers are more and more just doing things for convenience. And and whether it's the ridiculousness of like, all right, let's – first of all, setting aside how dumb the idea of like sending Tyrion down to King's Landing <laughs> was. But like the execution of it being made to look just like, oh, yeah, somehow we got in touch with Bronn somehow. And, and then I got – in touch with Bronn? No, they just, they just were like, oh, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's, oh, gold cloaks here. We'll pay you. Yeah, no, everything about the way they make it unfold strikes me as uh, right, so, a, a further departure than I'm willing to accept from what is supposed to be one of the neat things about the hard fiction right. genre, which is they try to give it a little taste of like, you know, yes, there's magical elements, but it would kind of have to happen this way, and people would really die, and this would really be hard. And Listen, 
we've talked already multiple times about how the biggest problem with Game of Thrones this season is the suspension of the space-time continuum. Yeah, and it was on big time It was display. on huge display in this week. I guess I'm just coming to accept it as like just, you know, what are you yeah. going to do? I mean, how fast did they get to Eastwatch? Yeah, it just, it makes me worry about like how, how far off the rails might they go to bring this to a nice, neat conclusion at well, the end. So, so, that's, so that's where I want to go. But before there, can we start with the bombshell? I mean, come on. Which one? Okay, so so I love that Game of Thrones hid the bombshell in a moment of Sam mansplaining. Oh, that was awesome. Are you talking about the, the Re- Prince Rhaegar's right. annulments? So, so I am not an expert on Westerosi laws of primogeniture. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm willing to concede that. But assuming, as I think is a fair assumption, that Westerosi laws of primogeniture largely model um, medieval European laws of primogeniture, um, what what I take from that bombshell is that John is in fact a true born son right. of Rhaegar Targaryen. He's not John Dragonfire or whatever the, the bastard name right. is for the Targaryens. He's he's John Targaryen. He's John and Targaryen. he's the direct descendant of the Mad King and he has a higher claim to the crown than Danny right. does. I mean Matt, right. It would be that right. I mean it's the son of the crown prince, right, yeah. has a higher claim to the throne than the sister of the crown prince. That's right. And so in this context, John is actually now the correct and proper heir to the Iron Throne. And, you know, it's so funny. They, they love And now. I did not see that coming. No, I thought that was pretty interesting. And I, I hope they actually do something with it. They, it, was, it was delightful just having Sam pay no attention to Gilly as she's saying this stuff. <laughs> it's pretty hilarious. Um, I actually almost threw something at the TV. I was like, listen to Gilly! And, of course, they reinforce it by not, not long after that having John, you know, having the dragon... Yep. Uh, you know, snuggling up to John. As I tweeted, hey, you smell like a Targaryen. <laughs> exactly. Like, they got a good sense of smell. Can we talk about uh, her execution of the Tarleys? Uh. Um, I, I got to say, I, I hope they're purposefully trying to complicate the case for her. They, they One week they give us this, you know, this honey-dripping, lovely defense of her case for the crown from Melisandre. Uh, uh, no, from... Uh, no, no, from Missande. Missande, I'm sorry. Melisandre is the... Uh, <laughs> the, 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 the I hadn't red noticed that. Yeah, no, from Missande. Uh, Missande of Nath. But then they, then they have the Targaryen aspirant uh, burning, you know, some somewhat sympathetic in the context father and son pair as, as a way to force people to obey her. And it's to me, it's just very contrary to all that they were claiming in past episodes about how she has a case that's normative, not just uh, patrilineal. So, so even though the most important reveal of the week was John's true lineage, right? I actually think the most important scene of the week was the awesome Tyrion Varys conversation, right? Because I think what they're setting up is a real showdown between Tyrion and Danny, um, where Tyrion's basically like, listen, you can't keep, you know, just burning people. And Danny either agrees with him or there's some huge falling out and Tyrion yeah. is ostracized as, the, as her hand. I think that'd be a very cool development because in a show that's supposed to be so gritty, they have chosen a couple of characters and made them flawless in yep. certain respects. And yep. Danny's held forth like supposedly so flawless. She's made some bad decisions, yeah. but, but it was nice to see, well, maybe she's not a, Perfect. Uh, but with all that said, then, then the one thing I don't get about her character is if she is so locked on the prize of the Iron Throne, why would she be the one all of a sudden to be like, hey, Cersei, <laughs> let's call a timeout and let's turn north. Well, and, and, okay, so here's another problem with the story. Like, wh- why would you think this is going to work? And that this is 
do you re can you not just take Cersei out, finish it first, and then turn to the north because the stakes are so high? You've got to clear your rear so you can then march north. And also, what has convinced like what changed her mind on that front, right? Because clearly, John wasn't. I mean, was it the cave drawings? I maybe mean, it was just her dragon trusting John, so she trusts John. Yeah, maybe. I mean, yeah, but that, that, actually probably... that, that could do some more explication. Yeah. Of course, now that leads us to the the, the thing that really bugs me: <laughs> this completely harebrained Ocean's Eleven plot, or or maybe it's magnificent. <laughs> Seven or the Seven Samurai. I can't tell what it is, but the like Motley Crew. That they they completely artificially inject this like overly smiley uh, Gendry who's like, yeah, hey, let's go. I'm ready. Out here's my Where's Warhammer. Where the frack did Gendry come from? I mean, it just seems so forced. Like the idea that that. Uh, the Davos is going to take the risk of going into Flea Bottom as he does. Right, to rescue Gendry, who's hiding in plain sight. Who he, who he, sh who he thinks shouldn't be there, has, has no intelligence to suggest he would be. Oh, there he is. Of course, sure. And he's ready to go. He's got his bag and his Warhammer waiting. <laughs> oh, really? Come on. Uh, obviously, they're, they're, they expect him to play some role. I think it's unfortunate. Maybe this is just, you know, they're following the guidance from George Martin. It's supposed but to like, happen. But, but Gendry, I mean, Gendry, what is Gendry's role? Like, I mean, so he's he's Robert Baratheon's bastard. He has no claim to the throne. Like, you know. Well, he says he's Prince, you know, he's Prince Gendry. He introduced himself. I mean, he seems. No, no he didn't. He just no. had Gendry. Didn't he say Prince Gendry? He said Gendry, Robert Brown. Oh, I misheard that. I thought he said Prince. It's funnier that he said it my way. Um, um, well, it's it just funnier if he said it. Well, and I will say he his character maybe it's just the way the guy's playing him, but I mean he's he's awfully kind of energetic and smiling in a way that seems a little odd. I don't know if he's been told to play that, no, no, but no, no, it right, feels right. like comic relief, and I don't um, like it. Well, oh, comic relief or trying too hard and is like actually a spy, I guess, or maybe he's there to be the expendable one in their little ridiculous mission. Like what, he's going to he's going because Donald Barbarian isn't isn't expendable. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, a lot of those, and I think Thoros is ready to go too. Yeah. Judging by the no, we did we did the flaming sword. Um, uh, all right, two last questions before we before we run out of time. Um, first, Littlefinger and Arya, where is that going? That's pretty awesome. The only thing you have to know about Littlefinger is chaos is a ladder, and, and, and don't trust anybody, including don't trust anybody. And and I think that he has spotted very smartly a way to split the Starks. And he's manipulating Arya, obviously. Why? To create more chaos. Who knows how much further yeah. he might rise. He was starting to sense he wasn't going anywhere further with the current lineup of the board. So he's using Arya to knock the board over once again. Yeah, I think it's time that Arya adds Littlefinger to her little list. Um, yeah. All right, and then <laughs> nice. second. So so the great armistice plan of, of season six. Um, is it me or is Admiral Akbar sitting off screen somewhere shouting, It's a trap! <laughs> it's a trap! I mean, like, if you're... Well, and wouldn't that be super obvious to everyone involved here? I like, would think so. Of course, the, the people to him, it should be obvious, are the ones coming up with this harebrained scheme. Yeah, so. I mean, so, so are, I mean, is, are we really set up now where next week is the huge East Watch situation and then the season finale is the grand armistice of, you know, the first, the, the, of the long night? Here's a question. The Thinking about Eastwatch, right? So, the, so they're obviously going to have this this showdown. This sort of magnificent seven episode takes place where they where they run away screaming. Apparently. Yeah, like imagine that. You know, you're going to have to run back to the wall. I don't think so. The, you know, some some of the the uh, I guess the uh, the lords of the Dark Knight are on horses and such. The the giant they have a alone. Yeah. Oh, by the way, if they can if they can work horses, including I think they have stirrups and such. Why can't they just build ships and sail out of the the north? That, I, I don't know. Is that just, That's just <laughs> too yeah, much? Go spot your plot hole somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, well, I guess what I'm trying to say is, so I actually thought that the narrative of episode five was the most compelling. Like Episode four was the most compelling, obviously because of the the 
it wasn't really a battle. The massacre of the Reach. Yeah, right. Yeah, that was something. Um, but episode five, I, I thought like clearly we're building a crescendo. It just seems to me so obvious what the crescendo is. And I hope they've got a twist coming, like John being the true-born son I of hope that's not Rhaegar the twist, and Lyanna right? Stark. It's got to be something else. The question is, when does Sam find out? When does this come up again? Is well, it going to be? Where is Sam going? Well, I know that's interesting too. Where Where is he going? Is he going to Castle Black? That's a long ride. But of course, is, la- it, is it? Lately on the show, it seems like <laughs> no. Actually, it's pretty easy. I mean, it was hard for Arya back in the day, but but these days it took Arya like four seasons to get across Westeros. Yeah. And uh, okay. Yeah. Anyway, um, I guess we'll have more to say about that All right, next let's, week. Let's put it into it. So uh, our, our, our fake not recorded outro, right? You should follow us on Twitter at NSL Podcast. You should leave a review on iTunes. Please do. Even if your complaint is that it's too long. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you should follow Bobby on Twitter at Bobby Chesney. You should follow me at, at Steve underscore Vladek. Um, if you are one of the 52 entering members of the University of Texas School of Law class of 2020 in Bobby or my constitutional law class, welcome. Yeah, can't wait to see you. Um, I, I actually can wait to see them. I, I wouldn't mind a little more time <laughs> two weeks from today. I two think we both have go. our first classes. We'll see how the podcast does then. Um, and we'll see you know, if we have a, if, if, what, what the president has to say between now and then. Sounds good. On that note, guys, stay safe out there. Adios.